Amen, amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And it is a a joy to see all of you here gathered in person. We're glad you can join us online. And what we're doing today is continuing our series that we've been in all fall called Vapor, Finding Meaning Under the Sun. And we've been walking through this book of Ecclesiastes written by Solomon to to some people who are searching for meaning, searching for purpose. And and it's been this kind of long journey, almost like like a road trip visiting a town that we're not exactly familiar with. And so today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you're new, you can grab one of our discipleship guides out there that'll show you where we're at. We're in week 10 of this series. Uh, And so last week, uh, we saw what it looks like when we put our hope and our faith in wealth alone. And today, in chapter 7, whether you kind of knew this is where this was going or not, we're going to see what does it look like when we try to avoid all adversity and all pain. Spoiler alert, it doesn't necessarily go well. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And, and while you're turning there, um, the next couple sermons, uh, 7 and 8, um, we're not going to be able to get as deep as maybe uh, I would like us to. And so um, by way of thinking about this, when I was in middle school, I got to take a trip to Washington, D.C. Anybody do the Washington, D.C. trip in middle school, right? You get one day to do the Smithsonian. I say the Smithsonian, right? There's like how many different museums, right? There's like a museum of of everything, right? Uh, And and so we had one day, and so we were like less than an hour in each museum. And so like kind of got a bit of the lay of the land, wish we could have spent more time in the Air and Space Museum, um, right? You know, that's the fun one. Um, And so we're kind of just going to be like, think about like a day at a bunch of different museums. You're going to get a sense of what they're about, you're going to get to maybe get a bit of the lay of the land. And maybe there's going to be something in these verses. You say, I want to go back to that later and spend more time. So I went when I was 13. That was, 30, that was 28 years ago. I haven't been back yet. So anyway, I hope to make it back someday. Um, so let's get into it. I've got this chapter 7 broken into six sections, starting in verses 7. Uh, sorry, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Let's go. A good name is better than precious ointment the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools." For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity or or vapor. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Okay, so this first museum I'm calling the better than showcases. So um, we're going to mix analogies now, go from Smithsonian to, to Price is Right, okay? Everybody know the Price is Right? Anybody grow up watching that when they were a kid? Bob Barker? I'm sure there's somebody else that does it now. I'm old. Um, so Price is Right, at the end, you get to what? Two showcases. 
And the first showcase is like, hey, you get a camping trailer and, 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 and like a barbecue and like a Yeti mug. And the second one's like, oh, a new car, right? And then maybe a jet ski. But the, the new car is like a Ford Festiva. Like nobody's excited about it. I want us to look at these verses like two different showcases. And in showcase one, here's what you got. Okay, so you're up there, you're up on stage. Showcase one has just opened up, and here's the list. Showcase one, day of death, house of mourning, sorrow, sadness of face, rebuke, the end, and patience. Top it all off with patience. Anybody want to see what's in door number two? Right? Okay. Showcase number two, birthday, house of feasting, laughter, house of mirth, songs, beginnings, and then one we love right now, pride. Who in their right mind chooses showcase number one? No one. And yet Solomon, the preacher in this sermon of Ecclesiastes, countlessly says over and over and over, showcase one is where it's at, guys. So we've got to talk about that for a moment, right? Because showcase one just sounds like hell. Showcase two, right? Endless vacation, endless party. And so when we see better than, I don't want us to get it wrong and think that one is good and one is bad. But it is saying that showcase number one, that one that we all avoid, that nobody wants to bid on, like I'll bid negative a thousand on that one, maybe Bob, right? He's saying, no, showcase two is good. So let's not demonize showcase two, but let's recognize that real growth and what I want to call today authentic life come from accurately processing showcase number one. Because right, when when your team's winning, it covers a lot of warts, right? But then when the losses come, you start to see, oh man, there's stuff to work on. Sorry, I'm a Husky fan. That's what our whole year has been. Okay. See, if we were going to write these verses, we'd say, be happy, be at the Feast of Laughter. Parting is, in the beginning is way better than mourning or sorrow over a short life that will end. And yet, he says, the preacher Solomon says, says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the fool's heart is in the house of mirth, or like right where the party's at. And and, and the wisdom of this is that there's so much more we can learn about the reality and the fragility of life in these sacred moments. Because while I would say that like showcase one is one we all want to avoid, it's where mourning is, it's where death is, it's where the end is. Like like those are real moments that we're all going to face. And I would say that the Bible's pretty clear that those are even sacred moments that need to be processed well. See, I've never been to a birthday party and thought about the finiteness of life, right? And what does it all mean, right? It's usually like cake, something to eat, we're having a good time. But I will tell you that, that I can almost vividly remember nearly every funeral I've been to. And the reason that, that we remember every funeral we've been to is because every one we go to reminds us that there'll be one for us someday too. And so it kind of sobers us up. And it kind of makes us evaluate and take stock of our lives. And what do we want our legacy to be? And how do I want to engage in the rest of my life? And and what about eternity, right? Those are all things that are masked if it's just endless party one after another. And so in verse 3, he says that our hearts are to be made glad through engaging in the reality of sadness. Right? That like grief is not something to be avoided, but is rather something to be processed. 
Verse three, another translation for that says, um, not just made right, but it is, sorry, is to be put right. And, and yet we really struggle with this because we don't like to engage with grief. And so when we lose somebody or we lose something, particularly like if it is, if it is death, we like to say things like, oh, well, they're in a better place, right? Or, or today's a better day for them, right? We always wanna, wanna comfort ourselves. They're smiling down on me right now. It's like, well, they didn't smile on me in real life. Why would they smile now, right? And yet we do these things to avoid the cold, hard truth that when we see others face death, it means that we're gonna face it too. And so funerals really are not for the dead, but they're for the living. So that we would remember that we're gonna face the end of our lives as well. And, and, then, and then in that, it's a, it's a call. It's a call to examine our lives and recognize how, how truly fragile they are, how short they are, how temporary they are. And so, so right, nobody shows up to a funeral and gets to walk in pride, right? Because, ooh, hold the phone. My day's coming too. And so it draws us to humility. Every funeral points to our own. And so like, right, he also says that, that funerals, kind of that first showcase, it can also be a bit of a rebuke. And so like, right, I, I got invited to a Christmas party, like I'm gonna RSVP for it. Like, yeah, I can't wait, Christmas party. Hooray, it's gonna be awesome. If somebody sent me an RSVP for like, hey, three weeks from now, you're getting a rebuke? No, I'm good. Maybe, maybe, maybe on that one. Just let it, let it float for a while. And then, you know, I'll be busy that night, right? Nobody wants the rebuke. But, but there's something that happens in the place of correction where we recognize maybe my life's going a direction that isn't leading to flourishing, that isn't leading to joy. And maybe there's times that it actually needs correction. And so our alternative is to just drown out the shadow of death and sorrow with an overabundance of good times and empty frivolity. Right, and so like anything in popular entertainment, right, we love a good comedy with good jesters, right? But I, we're never like, yeah, I saw that show, it was so great, it just really focused on grief the whole time. We're always like, next, next, no, I'm not gonna watch that. We don't want to process it. And so he says to avoid the house of grieving is only going to, to bring you down. The, 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 the house of feasting, right, more food and party, like th that's not gonna end up being authentic. Yes, there's days for celebration. Yes, there's days to enjoy. And we've talked about that a lot this fall, that like enjoy the good things in life. But if you want real authentic life, then you better be realistic about like, like the challenges it has. See, part of how my personality is wired is I don't like bad things. You know, I like fun. And so, so if, if something it, it thing means like it's going to be grief or painful, like I'd rather just kind of move on and do something else. But if we don't do that, then we are going to find ourselves stuck. And our world doesn't want us to merely whistle by the graveyard. It wants us to throw a rave in it. Let's just pretend it's not happening. Let's just, let's just keep partying all the time. And he says that the, the rebuke of reality is better than the nonsense song of fools. Anybody ever like just listened to the radio uh, on like a top 40 station and gotten like a, a lot of like rich theology? No, like you know that Bieber gets his peaches down in Georgia, right? Like that's what we know. Those are the things you learn. There's other lyrics in that song that I'm not gonna sing right now, right? 
Like you never get anything deep and rich from that. He's saying, hey, there's just some foolish songs. Like they're great. Like it's okay to tune your mind out for a moment. It doesn't mean to be heavy and dark all the time. But he's like, but you better have kind of processed grief. And, and if I want us to think for a moment about like grief being on a long road trip, that, that if you, like grief is not our destination, but if you don't stop and visit grief and process grief well, then it's just going to hang over your car like a cloud. On Wednesday, I, I drove home from Southwest Washington, and, and, and y'all know what Wednesday was. It just, it was every day in November, just rain, rain, rain. Like, I couldn't see behind me. I couldn't see in front of me. And that's what happens if you don't process and visit grief. It's just going to rain on you, and you're not going to be able to enjoy life now, and you're not going to be able to have a clear vision of the future. So I encourage you to spend some time in showcase number one to process your grief in a way that allows you to have perspective on your life now, purpose on your life now, and to remember the promises of God for your life in the future and into eternity. See, he uses this um, little analogy in verse six before we move on, and he says, um, he talks about um, uh, the crackling pot of, of thorns, right? It's really like nettles being under, under, under kettles, right? Thorns burn fast and they're quickly extinguished. And so rather than feel the heat of true life and death moments and engaging in sadness, he says, will ultimately lead to a glad heart. Instead, we settle for this, that fast burn of escapism. It crackles loudly, it burns brightly, but it's more flame than fire. And so the short-term party, it's going to get you through a night, but the morning's going to come and you're going to hit the alarm and, and that grief is still going to be there. The end of your life is something you're still going to have to think about. The great reformer Martin Luther says it this way, invite death into our presence when it's still at a distance and not on the move. I think that's a, a rebuke, if you will, or a warning or a challenge or an encouragement even for all of us to process on the end of our lives so that we can enjoy and engage in our lives today. He says that the end of something is better than their beginning there can be this beautiful reflection when something's actually been completed. And so when we don't process grief, we don't live life authentically, we just act like everything's okay, but then we, we still get stuck, and so that moves us into part two, where because we don't process our grief well, we look at our past nostalgically. And so this museum in verses 9 and 12, I'm calling Yesterday's Gone, Don't Be Angry With Today. Yesterday's gone, don't be angry with today. Verses 9 and 12 says this. Do not be quick in your spirit, <coughs> excuse me, to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Like that cough just did, okay. Say not, why are the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom perseveres the life of him who has it. And so in our desire to avoid pain or grief or adversity, we, we get very reactive. And so our response to challenges, our response to pain, our response to grief, I think is often one of anger. And I think if you... <laughs> If you really step back for a moment and particularly thought about maybe the last 18 months or I don't know, how many weeks are we into flattening the curve now? A hundred? Like, isn't some of your anger, my anger, over grief? 
of loss that's happened, pain that hasn't been processed. And so he's saying, hey, don't be quick to be angry. And I think that you can gauge a bit of your emotional, maybe even spiritual maturity at times with how do you react when you don't get your way? Or how do you respond when difficulty happens? How bent out of shape when you don't get your way? Like, do you actually trust God in the moment? And I'm saying that to you because I need to say it to myself. Like, I can tell you, headlines get me a little bent out of shape. Twitter can get me a bit bent out of shape. New stuff coming from the government gets me bent out of shape. Because I forget who's in charge. And I forget who the king is. And it's not the governor, it's not the president. And I have to remember who's ruling over my own heart. And so we're to respond with a bit of maybe patience and self-control if you're in Christ, right? James 1.19 tells us to be slow to anger. And the reason is, is he said, anger, if you hold it close, it gets fed. It gets nurtured. It gets raised, if you will. And now this, this little bit of anger that you've held on to is now all-consuming. And it's now given birth to just some, some real malice, some real callousness, some bitterness towards, towards maybe, maybe God even ultimately, but certainly towards others, towards your circumstances. It becomes lodged in our hearts and we begin to try to live life like, like we have a big clogged artery. We pump harder and harder, but, but as life stops moving, we cling to our bitterness. And so I, I don't think that the answer is for us to just vent quickly but the answer, it says, is to be slow to anger. And so rather than trusting God in difficult circumstances, recognizing that there is a future, recognizing that he's with us in the present, instead we compare our today with, let me say it this way, our version of yesterday. Not actual yesterday, but our version of it. Right? I mean, these, these verses here, right? Say not, why are the former days better than these? I will tell you, this verse is harder today than it was 18 months ago. Because I can easily say like, no, no, I'm all in on February 2020. Definitely better than today. And, and yet, like I'm sure that in the global story, in, in the, the big cosmic story, there was suffering then. I'm just talking about Chris Rich's life. You have to figure it out for your life. Like, I can easily say, and I have said many times, like, like I, so I'm 41 now. 36 was my favorite year, and it was, it was far and away the best. My wife and I had our anniversary. We went to Hawaii. It was great. Um, we um, uh, started to navigate moving into this building. I got to do an Ironman that year. Like, everything was awesome. And yet I forget that even in that time, it was like, oh, we have growing pains in our house because none of our kids will fit in these little bedrooms anymore. We might have to move. Oh, there's relational conflict and tension happening. Yeah, that was tough too. And so, right, we, we do this. We whitewash our past. And anytime it's difficult now, like, oh no, it was so much better back then. And guys, you're, you're in good company because God's people who were delivered from slavery in Egypt, who wandered around in the wilderness, at a certain point, they're in the wilderness, not working, right? They, they just have to go out and gather their food each day. God's providing for them. Nobody's whipped them for years. They're not making bricks with no clay. And at a certain point, they're like, oh man, remember Egypt? They had like the best kebabs. It was so good. There was meat back there. Oh, the, whipping, the beatings weren't that bad. They just did it until morale improved. Right? We whitewash stuff all the time. And what it does is it keeps us from living our life today. 
Because if grief is that cloud that doesn't let you see it, nostalgia, whew, that is intoxicating. It's that glossy version of the past where everything was better. So we don't trust God today. We compare it with our version of yesterday. And, and what happens is it becomes another force of, uh, of self-indulgence and escapism. Man, today ain't like it used to. So if today ain't that great, why should I try to be great? Why, why should I rise to the moment or the occasion? I mean, th- this is the time that God has us in. So clearly this is the time that's in, intended for us. And so it means that maybe there's work to be done. And maybe that work is, is you know, fixing society, but I'm betting a lot of it is work that has to be done here. That, that might require counseling. That for sure is going to require prayer. I know it's going to require God's word. And a lot of that's work that God's going to do and God wants to do. Because he's like, hey, no, yesterday's gone. I have you here today, and I have laid out a path and promises for you for the future. So don't hear me wrongly. Celebrate, remember, reminisce, but avoid looking fondly backwards at some imaginary yesterday that never existed that's only going to rob you of authentic life today in the day that God has given you. Okay, we've got to keep going. Museum number three, God-given days. What are the days he's given us, right? Because when you, when you look at the good old days are gone and adversity's here, we've got to remember that God made both of those. Verses 13 and 14 says this. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is indispensable. But wisdom is not God. And God, in his wisdom, he's, he's allowed and maybe even at times ordained certain things to happen in the world that, that to us seem awkward. And I say awkward because it doesn't say God made wicked days. It said God made some paths crooked. So that just means a little bent out of shape, a little bit of difficulty, a little bit of adversity. So don't, don't hear God as some author of wickedness, okay? Right, that, that's, that's the enemy, that's Satan, that's our own sin. No, God is the author of life, of, of joy, But we become, I think, a bit prideful if we assume that if we experience something as being bent out of shape, then what needs to change is our circumstances when maybe what God intends to change is us. We might have to think about that for a moment. God, what are you trying to do in me when circumstances get challenging? Maybe it's not the circumstances that need to be corrected and changed. Maybe it's us. And so I think it, there's times that we can get so stuck that what we're really saying, I think on some level, is, hey, God, you got it wrong. You're supposed to fix this. It's supposed to be better now. I learned my lesson. Okay, God's not out there to, to punish you. God's not, you know, putting you in some sort of purgatory till you figure it out. But God maybe has given you circumstances and and challenges in life in in order to be able to process some change and some growth. And so, right, we we read a couple weeks ago in in Romans uh, that says, God works out all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes. 
to be clear, that doesn't mean that every day is awesome, right? Right? We know every day is not awesome. And so part of an authentic life, and this is, this is one of the reasons why I keep appreciating God's word more and more and more as I get older, it is how realistic it is about life circumstances and the world we live in. And so authentic life with Christ knows that awesome and adversity are both parts of the life that we're going to experience. That your life's going to include awesome, and your life is going to include adversity. We live in a world that is not yet perfect. It was made perfect. The Bible's clear about that. Sin has entered the world, and it has led to brokenness, like societally, individually, families, all of creation, it says, groans. And yet it's still the creation broken as it is, that God made good. You are the creation that God made good, and yes, is corrupted by sin, but, but you were made in his image. So there's a tension of you're awesome and adversity for somebody else, maybe even yourself, right? So we can live an authentic life if we can be honest that it's gonna be both awesome and have adversity. So when we're blessed with day and time and seasons of prosperity, we can see that as an opportunity to praise him. We can enjoy the gifts of God, like enjoy. And we don't have to think somehow that, that we're gonna be more holy if we don't enjoy the things that God has given us. Like I, I just, I don't wanna enjoy too much because that's unholy. Like communion with God leads to joy that is overflowing. Doesn't mean you're always gonna be happy. But the things that God has given us in this life to enjoy are gifts from him. And I don't want us to let God off the hook in our day of adversity either. Right? You don't, you don't have to enjoy it. You don't have to be like, gosh, I, I feel like I haven't grown for a while. God, could you send some adversity? Like just navigating a world that is, as we've said in this series, under the sun, divorced from God, is going to include adversity. So we don't have to seek it out. But it doesn't mean it has to always be avoided either. What adversity can do is it can draw us closer to God. The times of greatest adversity in my life have been the times, I believe, of greatest communion with God. And I think that's maybe what he's talking about with Showcase 1 and Showcase 2. When you're in showcase two, you're like, hey, God, yeah, I mean, that's great. Everything's awesome. I, mean, I don't really need you. But showcase one, oh, man, that leads to humility. That leads to dependence. That leads to, I believe, even communion with God. We're dependent on him. And because we're dependent on God, it means that we don't even have to, like, know everything that's about to come because we are dependent on God, not predicting what is next. See, we can have a lot of comfort even with what we see as unpredictable because nothing is unpredictable for God. All right, next, next one, number four. Calling this museum reality check. 15 through 19 says this. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, 
Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. So I believe that the authentic life holds two things in tension, two concepts in tension. That yes, there are ways to live that are wise, that will, for the most part, lead to greater outcomes, right? Saving money, investing well, is going to pay off more than squandering, right? Getting up, working hard is going to do better than not, right? Loving your kids with grace and mercy, pursuing your bride or your spouse, right, is for the most part going to lead to greater outcomes than faithlessness, right, or being harsh with your kids, right? So those are true. So hold that, that that yes, wisdom leads to some good things, and live in the tension that that, that wisdom, parables even, if you will, are not promises, they're principles, So yeah, there are times too that there's contradictions, paradoxes, even injustice, anomalies, right? So we have to have a framework for what happens when it's like, whoa, I saw the wise and the righteous, if you will, like their lives ended short. They didn't have much of a legacy. It didn't seem like it led to flourishing. And bro over here is just doing like, like he's wilding out. He's doing everything wrong and yet it's leading to flourishing, and he's living forever. What is going on here? So if you're going to live an authentic life, you have to be able to hold intention that wisdom is valuable, that walking in the way God has designed life to flourish is of great value, while also recognizing that in a sinful and broken world, there are moments where it seems like evil profits more than righteous, where foolishness leads to flourishing more than wisdom does. And it's because we see things in just very cut and dry, this moment, how it's going, not how the story ends. Because these verses here are pretty clear that like the one who fears God, who reveres God, whose faith and trust is in God, like he's going to be delivered. His life is going to go into eternity. And so what happens is when we see injustice or we see this tension without a framework of it, we start to be like, wait, hold the phone. I was told don't do these things before I was married. I was told this happened. Like, and now my marriage isn't great or these things are happening. This guy, like he just did whatever he wanted and it seems like things are going well for him. And so it leads us to a crisis of faith if we don't have that tension that we're navigating. So we're like, well, why follow God? Or God, what are you you doing? Where are you? You're not just. And so in our minds, we give up on God. Hey, good news, friends. God never gives up on you. But we give up on God and we start to deconstruct and we start to, to walk away from religion. Or, or we're like, no, 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 my problem is I haven't pushed it enough. I need to be more religious. I need to do more of the things. I need to, to read my Bible more. I need to go to more classes. I, need to, like, I just need to, more righteousness. And, and guys, that is karma, not Christianity. If I do more good things, good things are going to happen. No, this is an authentic life where sometimes we will experience injustices and pain in this world, knowing that there is a God who is just, who will bring justice and righteousness at the end of the story. And so part of the authentic life it describes in verse 16, right? Don't be overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. It's not saying don't be righteous or or just, you know, pursue all things in moderation. 
No, it, it is this like reality check of like, don't think your righteousness is ever going to be good enough to save you. That somehow your righteousness is going to be what, what gets you to the next life or makes it through this life, right? If you're just more vigorous in your pursuit of righteous living, God's going to become so impressed with you that he's going to owe you more life, better life, greater life. No, what, what it's supposed to do is for us to look at ourselves authentically and rea- realistically with, with reality and be like, I am not perfect. So my reliance can't be on my righteousness. My reliance needs to be on his mercy and on his grace. That that's where I'm gonna rest. That's where authentic life of humility and reliance drives us to so that we don't fall into the other ditch of being so prideful where we think we don't need God to save us or that our sin somehow isn't that bad. And so I I love that these verses include like, hey, go ahead and flee from wickedness. Like, don't be an idiot. Like, don't do things that could be really, really destructive to your life. Like, yeah, that's great. And know that as long as there's breath in your lungs, that you have not shipwrecked your life so bad that you are beyond the mercy of God to save you, to redeem you, and to restore you. Trust, not in your righteousness, but in Jesus' righteousness in your place that leads us to humility as we rely on his mercy and on his grace. Okay, we're gonna keep going. Number five, never good enough. Verse 20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows many times you yourself have cursed others. See, he gets into why you can't trust in your righteousness. And the answer is, we're not as awesome as we think we are. And and, and really, we shouldn't take ourselves as seriously as we do sometimes, right? Somehow, complete righteousness is not something you're going to achieve. It's only something you can receive from Jesus Christ. And so there's this universal truth that we all accept, right? Nobody's perfect, we, we accept that. We believe that. But in this case, he's saying the, the nature of our imperfection is, is in our sin, right? He says no one does good. You don't do all the things you're supposed to. And, and, and no one never sins. None of us are always doing the right thing and never doing the wrong thing, right? We're, we're complex people. And so the application of this is, like we said, don't take yourself too seriously, And and as criticism comes, or cursing comes, and it it does, right? Ever posted on Facebook an opinion? To toughen up a little bit. Like, I hate to say that. Like, that sounds really anti-gospel, okay? Like, but in some regards, like, hey, he's saying don't take yourself too seriously because, and don't get easily offended by others critiquing you He's like, you're hearing your servants, you know, saying bad things about you, your kids, your coworkers, right? All those different things. We don't have servants, but whatever. He was a king. He was doing well. But don't pay unnecessary attention to how mean others are towards you. I'm not going to say something stupid like, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but bad words never hurt. No, bad words hurt. But, But can we step off the ledge for a moment of a society that says, if you don't always affirm me that somehow you're, you're, you're waging violence against me, 
Like we have such a victimhood mentality in our society that we believe our righteousness comes not from Jesus, but from our victim status. So when somebody says something bad about me or to me, oh, that's violence, you're hurting me. No, no, he says, hey, before you get too offended, remember, you might be worse than you think you are. He actually says, you've actually been offended to other people. And not just once, he says, your heart knows many times you yourself have cursed others. Can you believe they said that about me? I mean, I was saying that about them to somebody else, but can you believe they said that? Like, no. Like, take a deep breath. Let it go. Don't take yourself too seriously. And don't take others too seriously as well. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I think he really hits it well when he was saying, hey, he was confronted by a guy who he said was insulting him. And he said, he didn't insult me at all. In fact, he was talking about another man, the man he thought I was. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. I love that. Like, hey, get out of abusive relationships, right? There's times you need to cut people off. Like, that's fine. But can we not walk around with like a hair trigger ready to just go off all the time thinking that somehow we don't also say things about people. And and really, all of this, guys, should drive us to a place of humility where we can simply confess that the authentic life isn't going to be one we're going to navigate on our own. It's one where we desperately need Jesus. Last verses, and then we're done. Number six, authentic life needs Jesus. Verses 23 through 29. All of this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far off from me. That which has been far off and and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snare and, and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. I see this alone. I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay, guys, this is a big, confusing section. We're not going to get into all the details here. However, he does say that, hey, wisdom, great. It just seems like it's far off. And when wisdom is far off, folly seems very near. And here, for Solomon, he equates it to, to a seductress, okay? So this is, it's not women, it's, it's personification of foolishness. And so he's saying that, that because wisdom is far off, foolishness and folly can be both near and they can be seductive. So you have to actually resist them. And so if you're going to actively resist something that is intoxicating to you. You can't just fight it with your will. You can't just, just you know, oh, cold turkey, I'm going to overcome. No, you have to be by, captivated by something in someone greater. 
And so the answer for, uh, like, like, why does wisdom seem so far off? How am I going to navigate an authentic life? Is that something greater leading to the authentic life that we've been created for is to be in awe of the God who made us, to be in communion and relationship with the God who made us. Because as we said, you, you were born and made in God's image. You're not a blank canvas, though. All of us have sin in our lives. And, and, and all of us enter the world, and by our desire, we turn from God and instead turn towards many schemes. Right? It talks about all these schemes, schemes, plans, plans like, hey, this is what's going to work for me. And, and the Bible begins pretty clearly, right? God makes it all good, and right away, another plan comes in, another scheme comes in. Hey, you can have the garden without the God. So why don't you just distance yourself from God? And ultimately, because of sin, that's what we got was distance from God. And the only way we're going to live an authentic life is not somehow working our way closer to God, but resting and recognizing on how close God is to us in Jesus Christ. To recognize that, that authentic life comes not from, from a life of completion where we've accomplished everything, but a true life of communion with the God who made us. And so, yes, sin is our fault, but in Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to be our fate. Sin is our fault, but in Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to be our fate. Because we believe that Jesus is the, the one righteous one. That Jesus is the one who's never sinned, who lived the perfect life in our place. And we believe that Jesus did, like, like, die the death we deserve on the cross. That Jesus actually accomplished your sin being dealt with on the cross so that you are no longer defined by your sin. Yes, we still have sin, we're still imperfect, but it's no longer what defines us. Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross. And so the call is to be a Christian, one who's, excuse me, a little Christ whose life is found in Christ. That you're not gonna find authentic life in karma or, or being super righteous and religious or, or self-deluding yourself that your sin doesn't actually matter and that you can just live a life apart from God without eternal consequences. No, as Christians, we find authentic life in Jesus Christ alone. And so we look back at those first two showcases, and we see that our destiny in Christ is one that is a house of feasting. It is a beginning of an eternity with Him. It, it is joyful. It is one that includes laughter and worship. And the reason we can enjoy showcase number two for eternity with Jesus is because Jesus has dealt with showcase number one for us. It says that Jesus came as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus Christ is acquainted with your grief so that you don't have to be defined by your grief. He's taken it for you. And in him and in the Holy Spirit, we have a chance of processing it and living lives now. That I love that, that they accuse Jesus of, you know, he lived a perfect life, but what did the religious people say? You're a drunk, you're a glutton. Because even in the, the 33 years that, that Jesus came and walked with us, he lived a life that, yes, in, was authentic, engaging in work, engaging in healing, engaging on mission, engaging with the poor, challenging authority figures, right? All of those things. And he just enjoyed life. He went fishing and camping with his friends. He went to weddings. 
He turned water into wine, good wine. This is what our good God does. And so in Jesus Christ, we, 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 we come together each week and, and, and next month we're going we're gonna to focus on the day of Jesus' birth, right? Next month is Advent. We're going to do a series um, called um, The Thrill of Hope, A Weary World Rejoices. And for four weeks we're going to look at the hope of Jesus' arrival, the day of his birth. And, and that's, that's important and that's necessary. But when we gather each week, we don't, we don't come forward and think about Christmas. No, each week, Jesus tells us when we gather together as, as God's people, when we gather together as a church, what does he tell us to do? Not to remember the day of his birth, not just to long for his coming, although yes and amen, tomorrow would be great, now even, right? He says, no, remember the day of my death. Remember my body broken for you. That's what we do when we take the bread. Remember my blood shed for you that washes you clean of sin when we take the cup. And so my encouragement for you is if your faith and hope is in Jesus, that we would turn from living a life of foolishness and we'd walk an authentic life with Jesus, remembering what he's done for us on the cross. And, and if your life has been one that is karma or rejecting God or trying to be religious, I would just pray that today you would repent that you would receive Jesus Christ's righteousness in your place, that today would be your day. It is the beginning of something that is amazing. And the end of a life lived for yourself, and the beginning of a new life walking with Jesus. If that's something that, that you've done or that God's done in and through you, then we encourage you to get baptized, to remember that the old you is gone, the new you, whose life is hidden in Jesus, has come and risen, just as Jesus has risen from the grave. And so the reason we call Jesus' day of death Good Friday is because he's on the cross instead of us. And so where God's first word about humanity was good, our sin speaks the word of death. Jesus' last words on the cross were it is finished so that vanity and vapor isn't our last words when we trust Jesus. Let's pray.